Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. About 6,000 years ago, around the time when farming and cuneiform writing were invented, a curious plant was discovered. It had some impressive qualities. It could grow in rough terrain, it could repel insects, and you didn't even have to care for it that much. But the best part was how it made people feel. Lots of ancient civilizations thought it was a gift from God, and they used it as a medicine. And that love lasted for thousands of years. In the early 20th century, the founder of Johns Hopkins Hospital called the plant God's own medicine. But the plant's seeds are used to make a drug that last year alone killed about 13,000 Americans. The story of heroin, which comes from the opium poppy, isn't actually unique. Sometimes, discoveries we think are good for us turn out to wreak havoc on our lives. Paul Offit is a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he's tried to understand how scientific discovery can lead to tragedy. He's the author of the book, Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. And he's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School. Paul, thanks for being here. Thank you. So uh, let's stick with that story of heroin for a minute. It was shocking to me that once upon a time, Heroin was sold as an over-the-counter drug, meaning, like, it's not a big deal. You don't need to get a prescription for it. People thought it was pretty good for you. They gave it to kids. How did we get to that place where people were, you know, taking heroin and it was okay? That's a great question. I think what ended up happening is the company that made it, Bayer, which also made aspirin, and made aspirin the same year, which was 1895. Um, When they made aspirin, aspirin was because they were worried that aspirin could cause inflammation of the stomach, so-called gastritis. That was available by prescription only. They made heroin in the same year, and for about 30 years, heroin was available over the counter. The American Medical Association embraced it, used it to treat a variety of things, but very soon we found out that it was enormously addictive. And did it come right off the market when people found out that it was incredibly addictive? By 1924, we passed an act in the United States basically making the sale of heroin illegal and sold one underground. And interestingly, underground in the early uh, 1900s in America meant Jewish mobsters, people like Meyer Lansky and Dutch Schultz and, and Legs Diamond, Arnold Rothstein, all those guys were Jewish mobsters. Full hmm. disclosure, my grandfather's brother also fell, fell into the same category. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the term that they use, this was interesting to me, the term that they use, and it's a slang term. You're not going to find this in Leo Rostin's Joy of Yiddish book. But the, the slang term that was used was schmecker, was the term for addict. And so heroin was referred to as schmeck, which was then anglicized to smack. Hmm. So uh, you talk about a series of drugs, uh, morphine, heroin, Oxycontin. They were all developed to try to fix a problem. And in the end, the fix ended up being at least as bad as the problem. Does that say something to you about science, about medicine, about, I don't know, the pharmaceutical industry? Like, how could that have happened that you had these series of drugs and people thought, yep, heroin, that'll fix it? 
Yeah, I think it's an example of medical hubris. I think we, we continue to believe, wrongly, that we could separate pain relief from addiction. And so you know, opium users became opium addicts, and then we thought, okay, we'll purify opium's main ingredient, which is morphine, and because right. it's pure, we can give less of it, and so opium right. addicts became morphine addicts, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sort of chemically modify it so it crosses the blood-brain barrier easier, more easily, and that was heroin, and so morphine addicts became heroin addicts. Right. And then we took another component of opium, which was thebane, chemically modified it to form oxycodone, and so then we became opioid addicts. You know, we just continue not to learn this lesson. And interestingly, there was an article last week stating that that uh, researchers believe that they had finally uh, separated pain relief from addiction. But I'm telling you, after 2,500 years, we should at least be skeptical of quotations like that. How did you get started thinking about this whole genre of scientific advances that just went astray? I mean, it, people thought they were advances, but they turned out so wrong. My, my expertise is generally in vaccines. Um, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that invented a vaccine, the rotavirus vaccine. So I always watch the, you know, the difficulties in creating biologicals. Uh, vaccines are a perfect example. You know, the, the polio vaccine that was made in 1955 that was heralded as, you know, groundbreaking. Jonas Salk was a hero. Right. Um, there was a company that made that vaccine badly. Cutter Laboratories failed to inactivate the polio virus. So inadvertently, 120,000 children in the United States were injected with live, fully virulent Whoa. polio virus. Oh 40,000 developed, uh, you know, developed abortive or short-lived polio about 200 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. It was one of the worst biological disasters in this country's history, and that's always true. You know, it's medicine always advances slowly and painfully, and mm. um, it's true of any advance. Any advance always has some something associated with it, which is uh, the downside. So, um, okay, we talked about drugs and addiction. I want to talk about something else very different uh, that touches, uh, I would say, every American's life. And it's the issue of fat. We have heard in the last few years this idea that maybe low fat, you know, that had been talked about for decades and decades, maybe that's actually not so great to go on a low fat diet and to focus on that. You look at how we got this wrong for so many decades, how we became so in love with the idea um, of low fat, of getting saturated fat out of our diet. Explain to me how that happened. Well, the way things sadly happen in medicine sometimes, which is people just simply uh, make definitive statements based on limited data, and, and that's what happened here. I mean, there was a, a very influential diet guru, if you will, in the 1970s named Ansel Keys, who said that we should eat less fat and, and that we should restrict, ultimately, fats to less than 30% of the total calories that we take, and, and McGovern actually set up a task force that said the same thing. What we learn as we go. Yeah, but okay. If somebody thinks that they, if a scientist or a doctor thinks, look, I've looked at the data and I, I can see what it shows. And in this case, low fat diets are, are clearly better diets. And then they go and tell that to people. How do you get ever get out of that cycle? I mean, if the person is malintentioned, you could imagine, well, you just find a well-intentioned person. But if the person is well-intentioned and believes that the data is sufficient, aren't we always going to be under that sort of I don't know, impression that we have plenty of data until the next tranche of data comes in and shows us, oops, actually, butter, not as bad as margarine. 
Right. I think that's true. I mean, you, you and I would both agree that 100 years from now, we're going to know much more about science and health than we know now. But we don't want to believe that's true, especially when it comes to issues of our own health. We want to believe that we know everything we need to know right now to make the, to make the right decision right now. But that's not true. Obviously, there are some medicine has limits. I think we're going to learn as we go. So there's always some degree of uncertainty, which is difficult for people, which is why I think at some level we're drawn to that guru. I mean, like a Deepak Chopra or Mehmet Oz, who set themselves up as all knowing. And mm. that is very reassuring to us, even though it's not true. So then do you think that there's like a moral to these mistakes in terms of that we could avoid them more or no, it's impossible. We can't. I guess my moral is this. I, I do think science gets it right. Uh, over time, science will get it right because if your data are correct, over time re they will be reproduced and you'll shown to be shown to be correct. But if you're incorrect, um, then you'll you'll be shown to be incorrect. So, for example, somebody like Brian McMahon, who who wrote a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine claiming that excess coffee drinking caused pancreatic cancer. I mean, Brian McMahon was, was a Harvard Public Health uh, uh, scientist. You know, New England Journal of Medicine is arguably the best of the clinical journals. That was wrong, and, and time showed that it was wrong. That doesn't mean that you can't trust science. I think it means that you should be skeptical of scientists because scientists get it wrong all the time. But science doesn't get it wrong. And I think that's an important distinction. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Paul Offit, a doctor at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and author of the book Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. Um, do you think that the scientific or the medical community should be more cautious? Maybe you should slow things down a little bit. Maybe that would uh, hinder progress a little. But maybe it would mean that we got things right a higher percentage of the time. I think we should be skeptical of, of the single study. We shouldn't fall into the single study trap. So, for example, in the late 1990s, a British re researcher claimed that the combination of measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism. The media was all over that, that uh, publication and assumed incorrectly that it was right. It was an extraordinary claim. If you look closely at that paper, you could see that it was based on essentially no evidence. And 17 studies ultimately showed that it was wrong. But we jumped all over that. I mean, parents chose not to vaccinate their children. Right. There were outbreaks of, of measles both in the United Kingdom and, and Europe and in this country because of that that single study. And, and you can give many examples of that. I mean, there, there are Nobel Prizes that have been awarded for lobotomies uh, as, as a discovery. Nobel Prizes awarded for a worm that supposedly caused cancer, which wasn't true. Um, so I think we should just take a breath when, when an extraordinary claim uh, comes out. But to that issue of vaccines, a couple of years ago, there was a poll by Pew that showed that 9% uh, of Americans don't believe that the measles vaccine is safe. Now, clearly, as you say, the paper that, that talked about that was discredited, and there's been lots of work since then to show that. But if you are highlighting scientific mistakes where only maybe decades later people figure out, whoa, we got that wrong, and there were these big implications of that, how do you square that for somebody who's not as sure about you know, giving their child the MMR vaccine? Well, what I try and do in the book anyway is to have sort of each of these seven stories ends up with a lesson at the end. So what did we learn from this? It's kind of like an Aesop's fable for science uh, lovers. Mm. But no, I think what, what you said earlier was interesting, you know, that they didn't believe that the uh, measles-containing vaccine was safe. Um, it's not a belief system. Uh, this is one of the, the joys of science for me. It's an evidence-based system. And you don't have to believe whether or not MMR uh, vaccine causes autism because you have a mountain of evidence that shows that it doesn't. It's a fact, much as evolution or gravity is a fact. So it's not a belief system any more than evolution is a belief system or climate change is a belief system. Those are facts. 
do you think there was a time when we created more problems via science? Like when you think about the problems that you talk about, heroin and getting things wrong about diet, you know, th- these effects ripple out to millions, if not hundreds of millions of people. Do you think our science is at a place where maybe it's less likely to make mistakes than it was 100 years ago when we knew some stuff, but a lot of things were still very new when you think about chemistry and so on? Sure. I, I, we know more, so I think we're much better at this. I, I guess what, uh, and I, there's one story about this in the book, I think where science can be dangerous in a sense is when it's used to sort of as a reason to express your worst prejudices. So that's one story in the book uh, about a very popular scientific treatise that was written uh, in the early 1900s by a, a New York City lawyer and conservationist named Madison Grant. He called it the passing of the great race. And what this book did was it took eugenics one step further. He tried to make the case that, that it wasn't just that characteristics could be passed from one family member to another, not physical characteristics, but other characteristics like loyalty or bravery or the likelihood to be a, a criminal, mm. but that, in fact, this was a phenomenon of races and that, that, that mm. were, there were superior races and inferior races. That book was ultimately translated into, into German, where it was essentially plagiarized by a young corporal who was imprisoned in Landsberg prison. He wrote a book to Madison, a letter to Madison Grant and said, this book is my Bible. And then he put whole sections of that book into his book, which he called My Struggle or Mein Kampf. And mm. um, he made the passing of the great race require reading when he came to power in the early 1930s in Germany. Right, so I think, right. you know, I, I think you could you could hear echoes of that today. Honestly, I think if, if you, for example, had some awful paper that was published claiming that they had identified the, the genetics of someone who was likely to be a murderer, or the genetics of someone who was likely to be a rapist, and that those genes were more likely expressed in people who were from Mexico, that there would be members of this administration who would, who would embrace it, even though obviously it would be wrong. There's a lot of bad science that's published, obviously, every day, because there's 4,000 papers that are published in the world's medical and scientific literature a day. So they follow a bell-shaped curve. Some are great, some are awful, most are more or less mediocre. But you can pretty much find a paper that claims anything. So we should be skeptical and and wait for reproducibility. So uh, you have created, as you mentioned, a vaccine for rotavirus, which results in diarrhea and dehydration, um, particularly in kids in developing countries. I wonder what you did when you were developing that vaccine to try to figure out how you make this an unequivocal public health win, how to make sure you don't fall into any traps or, you know, make any mistakes. Well, you never know. Uh, you know, we did phase one and phase two and ultimately phase three trials. So we did a phase three trial, a prospective placebo-controlled 70,000-person, 11-country, four-year trial that, that cost about 200 or $350 million to show that the vaccine was safe and effective. But that didn't prove that it was safe and effective. I think, you know, before the vaccine was then you know, licensed and given both in the United States and in the world, um, and now hundreds of millions of doses have been given, you know, you don't know. And Maurice Hillman, who I consider to be the father of modern vaccines, and that he made nine of the 14 vaccines we currently give to our children, said it best. I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. And that was true here as well. You never know. Now, there are catchment systems in place, like the Vaccine Safety Data Link, to show if there really is any problem. And I think now we've learned that there isn't. But you don't know. You don't know until you put it into a lot of people. And it's incredibly nerve-wracking. How long did the worry last for? Um, I would say the worry lasted for about five years. The vaccine was licensed and recommended in 2006. Now you're at hundreds of millions of doses. So I think you, you, can, you can relax. Right, right. You want the mountain of data to be an enormous mountain. Yes. No, people say that, you know, that your life sort of vacillates between moments of boredom and anxiety. Actually, you can have both at the same time. But mm. 
That's what I learned. How do you get the confidence to develop something that could be dangerous, that, that, you know, that, I mean, obviously has such potential, huge upsides, but, you know, does have these potential downsides? Well, I work in a hospital where, you know, prior to this vaccines uh, being licensed and used, you know, we'd see 400 children admitted a uh, winter with, with uh, you know, severe dehydration caused by this virus. I saw a child die of rotavirus when I was a resident. Mm. I mean, that's what you're working against. Right, you're trying right. to fight the virus and right. you want to fight it in the most effective way possible. You don't want there to be side effects, but that, that's the motivator. Right. Paul Offit is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School. He's also a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he's author of the new book, Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. If there's a question bothering your brain that you think you know how to explain, you need a test. Yeah, think of a test. And now a dip into history for the story of a man who pushed science forward and along the way had an unexpected discovery, which is often the case when your life is about experimentation. In fact, this is a guy who made such an impression that he was one of three scientists with his picture on Albert Einstein's wall when Einstein worked at Princeton. The two other faces up on that wall, by the way, were Isaac Newton, who changed modern math, and James Clerk Maxwell, who helped create modern physics. Unlike Newton and Maxwell, though, this third scientist got no real formal education. His family struggled financially, and going much beyond elementary school just wasn't an option, even though the boy was very smart. So in his early teens, he went to work. And he landed an apprenticeship doing something that changed his life, bookbinding. Suddenly, his access to knowledge was tremendous, and for years he absorbed the lessons of the books that were all around him. Then he applied for a job as an assistant to a big-time chemist. In the early 19th century, science was mostly something that rich people did. You needed time, you needed money, and you needed space. And this bookbinder's apprentice had none of those. So when the chemist hired him, the young man sometimes had to serve as his valet because his station in society was so much lower than that of his employer. But despite occasionally being demeaned and not being treated that well by the chemist's wife, the young man did get to travel. And he did get to meet other big-time scientists, and doors opened up. The chemist began to realize that the young man was actually a better lab assistant than many well-trained chemists, and he relied on him more and more. The young man finally joined the Royal Society, a stamp of approval for scientists. Soon his own accomplishments eclipsed those of the man who had hired him. He changed chemistry by discovering benzene and starting to understand electrochemistry, which is why we have batteries today. He changed physics by explaining electromagnetism, which led to the electric motor. And it goes on and on. But I said I was going to tell you about an unintended consequence of his research. So let's go back to 1823, when he tried to turn a gas into liquid chlorine. Then when he started to check the liquid out, the glass tube began to break apart. Glass went everywhere, and something strange happened. The air around the tube cooled way down. This may not have been his greatest contribution to science, but without Michael Faraday, no refrigerators, no freezers, no 31 flavors, no Dairy Queens, no ice packs after you slide into home plate. Faraday didn't like to be thought of in a particular branch of science. He liked to be thought of as an experimenter, someone who discovered piece by piece how the world worked. Nature, he said, is our kindest friend and our best critic in experimental science, if only 
we allow her intimations to fall unbiased on our minds. If you liked this segment and you want to hear more like it, check out our website, innovationhub.org. We've got interviews there about everything from how Barbara Streisand upended Hollywood to why empathy is not always a good thing. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative in Rochester, Minnesota, to build global destinations for life science, medicine, and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. This is a segment about sleep. And I was going to start it off by telling you a really funny anecdote about Arianna Huffington, who has written about how great sleep is and how amazing it makes her feel and how productive it's going to make us all. She's even actually let the New York Times into her bedroom to show them how you do sleep right. But somewhere in the Googling of Arianna Huffington and the looking for that great anecdote, I accidentally ended up on a full-page ad for a medication called Belsamra which, according to the ad, is the only prescription sleep aid that specifically targets the action of orexin. Now, that might mean something to you. It means nothing to me. Except it does underscore something we all know. We are in a society obsessed with sleep. And part of the reason may be that the way we sleep now is actually relatively new. It's an invention that, like a lot of inventions, was necessitated by a technological revolution. Benjamin Reese has written about how modern sleep was invented. He's the author of Wild Nights, How Taming Sleep Created Our Restless World. And he's a professor of English at Emory University. Ben, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So if you told somebody, you know, gee, we we really don't sleep now the way we always have. This is not a constant, the sort of eight hours a night kind of thing. Um, And they said, okay, well, what was sleeping like? five or six hundred years ago, what would you say? It depends on on where you were living. Sleep varies tremendously across cultures, and there's always been a real diversity of sleeping arrangements, sleeping styles, uh, sleeping configurations, sleeping durations, depending on when and where you lived. But virtually nothing about the way that we sleep now was practiced in almost anywhere in the globe before about the 19th century. Um, so the idea of the eight-hour sleeping In Europe and North America, apparently before the 19th century, most people slept in two shifts at night. And the historian Roger E. Kirch has really put that idea of what's called segmented sleep on the map. Hmm. And there would be an interval between the two major periods of sleep at night that was given over usually to ritual activity, either to prayer, dream interpretation, or lovemaking. It was thought to be a time of heightened fertility. So that was one huge shift in the way people slept. But another really, I think, equally dramatic shift was the separation of family members from each other during sleep, particularly children in each in their separate rooms. And they're supposed to stay there and sleep all through the right. night on their own in the dark. And, and that again, is not easy to train kids to do that, by the way, as you, as you I'm sure know. Like, you know, everybody's so concerned with making sure their kids do the right thing, but it's not that easy to get them to, like, stay in their room all night and go to sleep when they're supposed to. Kids don't want to be alone. Young children don't want to be alone at night. Uh, You have to train them how to do it. And we spend an extraordinary amount of time, energy, and money in doing it. And I think the results have been mixed at best. Mm -hmm. For one thing, we have all these systems, uh, sleep training manuals, pediatric sleep experts, child psychologists telling us that the child has to be 
on a routine in their own room apart from mommy and daddy or mommy and mommy or whatever configuration through the, through the night. And then they grow up and they're supposed to share a bed with somebody. <laughs> and I think it's no wonder that if, you, if you're trained so rigidly to sleep on your own that we have a culture of, you know, light sleepers, people who just can't handle somebody else being in the room right. or changes to their sleep routines. So let me go back to the segmented sleep that you were talking about. So you were saying were you saying that was in Europe and, and in North America that people had like like shift one and shift two of their sleep? Yeah, well there are examples from other cultures as well where this was common. But you know, I I don't think it's safe to say that that was a universal or default way of sleeping. There's too much variety. There's some cultures that have midday napping. There was a recent study of three uh, hunter-gatherer tribes today that haven't experienced some of the technological shifts that are thought to be behind the invention of eight-hour consolidated sleep. And, and they seem to package most of their sleep in one bundle. But segmented sleep, the two sleeps at night, was a prevailing or predominant model in North America and, and Europe um, before roughly the 19th century. So the, the idea now that's so common in sleep hygiene books that the best and most healthy way to sleep is to get yourself on a, on a very uh, exacting schedule where you do it basically the same time with the same rituals associated with it, you know, every night. Um, it really wouldn't make sense for somebody who is, say, living close to one of the poles, had to stay up for extended stretches during the summertime to catch enough game to last through the winter, and then during wintertime needed to sort of conserve that energy. It would make much more sense to to sleep for an extended period in the wintertime. I, I have to touch on one more thing that you mentioned, which was the idea that people slept in beds commonly with multiple other people. And and this was not necessarily people with whom they were romantically linked. So just talk about how that worked and how they thought completely differently about sleeping and sleeping with other people. Right. Now, the, the idea that you would be a traveler, say, driving down a highway and stop for the night at a hotel on a long-distance trip and share a bed with a complete stranger, it is horrifying to most of us today, right? Um, it's not commonly done. I, right. <laughs> it's, yeah, not common practice probably. Yes, but that was common practice uh, in much of early modern Europe for travelers in the 17th and 18th century who went, who went abroad and not even always, you know, people who were just trying to scrimp and save. Boarding houses and inns often had shared sleeping surfaces for strangers and so that seems like a convergence of maybe a, a not very well-developed hospitality industry plus increased travel. But, um, but I think it gets to a, a broader truth about sleep, which is that in many parts of the world, sleep is considered a sociable activity. You have families sharing rooms and often sharing uh, sleeping surfaces. And in many cultures, you have rituals around um, communal gatherings that end with large numbers of people bedding down together. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Benjamin Reese, the author of Wild Nights, How Taming Sleep Created Our Restless World. Okay, so let's talk about how the modern notion of sleep that we've that we sort of touched on this whole time was invented. Where did the 
let's go to bed at 10 p.m. and let's wake up at 6 a.m. Where did that where did that idea come from? Well, there are a lot of forces at play, but I think most of them have to do with economics. In the early industrial era, say in the in the early 19th century, the idea that workers needed to show up on the factory floor at the same time every day regardless of season. That was one of the first things that that sort of wrenched people away from attuning their own sleep patterns to the rising and fall of the sun. Instead, you, you attuned your pattern to the factory bell. And later in the 19th century, as a certain number of industries started to work through the night, the notion of no, even normal sleep patterns that say, you know, where you had to be on the factory floor by 7.30 or 8 and then you would knock off at 5.30 or 6, um, that started to get stretched in, in different ways in processes like steel production and other industries that went through the night. You had to have people taking different shifts. Right. So what you had was workers who were just kind of systematically taken out of a, a kind of circadian rhythm with sleep and made to adjust it to factory life. And all kinds of things went along with that. Train schedules, school schedules for children became sort of standardized and constructed in a way that people really had to fall in line. So when you think about the transition from sort of various ways of sleeping to the more industrial revolution way of sleeping, the more standardized way, um, Talk about some of the sources that you found that explained what that transition looked like or that, that illustrated that transition for you. Well, I'll tell you, the, the best source I found for it was really the most surprising one. At the time that I was putting together a course on sleep, I happened to be teaching an American literature survey and assigned Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Uh, which was a book I had read probably a half dozen times before. I taught it to undergraduates and graduate students. And I was just amazed to to read it and realize that it was almost all about sleep and waking. And Thoreau write, wrote a lot about what was happening to sleep in his own time as Concord and surrounding areas were going through a big uh, transformation with the first factories being built and the and the and the railroad line coming through town. And he wrote about when he when he left his kind of idyllic cabin in the woods, if he'd go into town, he found what felt to him like a community of zombies, people who couldn't hmm. sleep and couldn't be awake. And they were strung out on coffee and <laughs> kind of jacked up on, by, you know, sensationalistic news stories and trying to get to work on time and hustling to get to the train. And, uh, and he said, I, you know, I've hardly met a man who is quite awake. Right. And his book felt to me very contemporary in that way. I was thinking it's a vision I feel like so many people would be familiar with, that people come into the office in the morning and they're like getting as much coffee as they can to sort of, you know, jumpstart the day and that whole thing. Yeah, and it was really one of the things that led Thoreau to his experiment in the woods. What He himself had been completely run down and um, had had a number of health problems and some, you know, had had lost uh, his own brother, whom he was very close to, and went through a period of profound sleep disturbance. And he wanted to kind of recover his body's equilibrium. His family had actually run a pencil factory, and he had worked in the factory for a time, and just could not adjust himself to the rhythms of that kind of life, and wanted to 
wanted to tr- sort of experience his body as a natural object? You know, it, it depends on um, what statistics you look at. But if you look at sleep surveys today, many of them indicate that we now get less than eight hours of sleep and that that has fallen off in recent decades. You know, that we used to get more if you went back four or five decades. We now get considerably less than eight hours. I don't know if you have particular views on on how we're doing with sleep, but what do you think has happened to our sleep over the last few decades? Well, I think the, the jury is out on whether in our particular society people sleep less than they did, say, 100 years mm-hmm. ago, 300 years ago. I, obviously, we, we don't have the kinds of technology that accurately measure sleep. And it's tricky. We're relying on diaries and things, and people aren't always great at keeping diaries. Yeah. Well, not only are they not great at keeping diaries, but it's impossible to tell somebody how much you slept. Mm-hmm. I would say, though, that you know we have a kind of language or discourse of sleep catastrophe today that we're you know we have a battle a war on sleep that everybody's poorly rested we have over 2500 sleep clinics we have a multi billion dollar sleep pharmaceutical industry all kinds of gadgetry and products that are being sold to kind of cater to either different sleep disorders or to optimize your your sleep and I think a lot of people have the feeling that sleep is is somehow broken, but I don't I don't think that it's fair to say that most people in our society sleep worse than most people did a few hundred years ago. We have certain advantages that um, very few societies have had historically surrounding sleep. Like what? So, fire departments, you know, fireproof pajamas. Other than in relatively poor communities, we don't have major problems with vermin and other infestations, creepy crawlies at night. Dentistry has been great for sleep. I mean, if you try to go to sleep with a with a toothache. So, you know, we have a range of safe and comfortable sleeping accommodations for more people in, I think, 21st century U.S. and other highly developed parts of the world than were probably ever available before. But what I also think we have is new kinds of, of psychological pressures, technological pressures, mutations in the way we set up our work life that are putting pressure on sleep from different angles. Mm. And then the, the other problem is that we've inherited this set of rules about standardizing sleep that aren't fitting with the ways that we're supposed to operate while we're awake and and, and the mismatch between the rules of sleep that we've been discussing and the kinds of lives that people are trying to lead, I think creates a sense of pervasive disordered sleep. Hmm. Benjamin Reese is professor of English at Emory University. He's also the author of the new book, Wild Nights, How Taming Sleep Created Our Restless World. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. There are lots of ways of measuring raw power. But if a pollster called everyone you know and asked them to name one or two of the most powerful people in the world, I bet, for the most part, the votes would cluster around just a few names. Now, there are 7 billion people on the planet. So if we could pretty much agree on the number of people that you could fit in your living room, that's saying something. 
Sandra Navidi calls these people super hubs. They sit at the center of our human networks. If you know a guy who like knows a guy who has a lot of pull somewhere, super hubs are that phenomenon on steroids. They're the people who you meet when you get to the epicenter of the most powerful networks on Earth. Some are famous, others aren't. They just control big pools of money made up of little pools of money like your savings account and your retirement account. Navidi has spent years hanging out with these folks. She's the author of Super Hubs, How the Financial Elite and Their Networks Rule Our World. And she says, having a few queen bees isn't strange. That's actually how nature works. The thing is, in the last few years, super powerful humans have increasingly drifted away from the rest of us. And the results are scaring even them. The more connected individual nodes, in this uh, instance hubs, become, the more they move towards the center, and they're the most centrally located and connected to almost everything. And I argue in my book that the super hubs are so immensely powerful that they have managed to disable corrective mechanisms, and that's why we are in the state that we're in right now. Hmm. Okay, so how many people would you say are super hubs in the world, like are powerful enough to be called super hubs? There is no hard and fast number or way to define it. But for instance, I've just come back from the IMF meetings of the world at the International Monetary Fund in Washington. And there are Hmm. a couple of thousand people, you know, central bank governors, finance ministers, bank CEOs, CEOs of big funds. And if you put them all together, I would say roughly, yeah, probably a couple of thousand, but you could just as well, you know, expand that definition. Or you could just say, you know, if you take the most powerful, just the CEOs of a few institutions and the richest billionaires, then you could probably limit it to a few dozen. It just depends on the definition. Mm. Okay. And like how elite or how powerful you have to be where the cutoff is, is what you're saying. Correct. It's not, it's not an accurate science. It's more an art. Right. So give me, uh, give me the names of a couple of people who you would say are clearly, in your mind, super hubs. And then, and then tell me like what they do and why they deserve to be called some of the most powerful people in the world. Well, an example would be, for instance, Janet Yellen, the head of the Federal Reserve, the Central right. Bank of the United States. She's immensely powerful. Every decision that she makes, along with her board, of course, it's not just her, but she has the greatest influence within the Federal Reserve, um, impacts all our lives, how much we pay for our mortgages, how much we get for our savings. Then there are big bank bosses like Jamie Dimon, for instance, and Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs. They're very powerful CEOs in the banking system. And the decisions that they make, for instance, who gets loans, which industries they put their weight behind, contributes to, you know, job the job market, for instance, but also and especially the influence that they wield in Washington with the political elite through the revolving door and through lobbying and their personal context, they're immensely influential. And these people sort of, quote unquote, rule the world because they have a good understanding of how this complex system works because they have sort of a bird's eye view. You said before that maybe once upon a time there were corrective measures to keep these folks in check, these really, really powerful rich people, but that some of those mechanisms for sort of correcting their, checking their power, correcting their behavior, that those mechanisms had been disabled. How did they get disabled? They get disabled primarily through power loss and through their 
through the influence that they wield. An example would be, for instance, regulation. After the financial crisis, we saw an increased regulation. For instance, Dodd-Frank is um, a law for, that applies to the financial industry that was supposed to keep the financial industry in check. And now that we have a new administration with pretty much the same networks, though, tying into it, we already see a move of getting rid of some of the regulations that are part of it, for instance, the remuneration of, of CEOs in the financial industry. And it always gets to this better known, better known as huge pay packages, right? Exactly. And um, but this is sort of the, the this tendency is kind of natural due to power laws and power laws say, because in every system, the no, those nodes who have the most connections attract a disproportional number of more connections. Because a great number of connections um, is more of a guarantee for survival. And if you, for instance, think about other people, and again, this applies to any type of system, the biology or chemistry or whatever. And in human systems, if you imagine a cocktail party and you come into a room and there's somebody famous who's very important and interesting and surrounded by tons of people, then you will always see more people trying to gravitate towards that person in the center of the room rather than to lonely people who are standing at the fringes. And one of the points that's clear from what you've written is that this phenomenon is bipartisan or like it's nonpartisan. Both Democrats and Republicans who are elite are major players here. They get sucked in. And then, as you say, uh, once you have a job like head of the Federal Reserve or head of a major bank or president of the United States, you are the person at the cocktail party who people want to be around because you've got a job where you can move the levers. Yes, of course. You can make things happen. You're in the center of the network and basically nothing goes by you. The only thing that you can try if you're in opposition is try to get that super hub out of his position and movement that we're seeing right now, but it's hard. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Sandra Navidi, author of the book Super Hubs, How the Financial Elite and Their Networks Rule Our World. You know, uh, you do talk in Super Hubs about kind of a weird phenomenon in which these incredibly powerful people will invite critics of theirs, uh, people like Paul Krugman, who's a columnist for The New York Times, or Thomas Piketty, who's a French economist, and they'll invite them uh, to speak to them at these incredibly high prices, sometimes approaching $100,000 an hour. Um, and I just wonder, why are the elites so interested in hearing from people who think, yeah, let's redistribute money more, you know, uh, and that the super rich are not all that great for society? I think the elite is very well aware of the problem, and many of them would like to change things. I once asked George Soros, who works within the system and capitalizes to a great right. extent on it, and then he does a lot of good with his money. And I said, well, why don't you just try to work the system more? And he says, well, as long as the system exists the way that it does, I work within the system, but that doesn't mean that I won't try to change it. Many super ups that I interact with will say that those thought leaders do have a point and we need to change the system. But they're sort of, and that's one of the key questions I ask, do these super ups, are they prisoners of the system or do do they hold the system prisoner? Right. Okay. So to that issue of whether we're going to change our values, I want to play for you a little clip of... Um, Bernie Sanders when he was running for the Democratic nomination. This is 2015. And here he is talking about something he talked about, uh, frankly, all throughout his campaign. He is still talking about uh, it, even though the campaign is over, the very, very rich. Now, the truth is 
that America today is the wealthiest country in the history of the world. But most people don't know that. Most people don't feel that. Most people don't see that because almost all of the wealth rests in the hands of a tiny few. The issue of wealth and income inequality, to my mind, is the great moral issue of our time. It is the great economic issue of our time. And it is the great political issue of our time. And our message to the billionaire class is, your greed has got to end, and we are going to end it for you. Sandra Navidi, um, you uh, have heard Bernie Sanders, of course, but you've heard people all over the world, politicians all over the world, talk about the very rich. Do you think something's about to change? Do you think that if you were a member of this, you know, like tiny, tiny financial elite, you'd be worried? I'd be worried, but not specifically just about them. You know, we've seen that they have bought property in New Zealand or Australia, farmland in Canada. So I think in the end, they'll be fine. That's probably not the world that they would want to live in or for their children. But I'm more worried generally, and I think so are they, um, about the stability of the overall system. Because if we see as a matter of fact, the World Economic Forum has a yearly protest, a protest barometer, and never in the history have there been more protests worldwide. And also the mm. National Security Advisor, former Brzezinski, has said we'll see you know, a global awakening of the masses because never have they been better educated and never before have they realized to a greater extent their helplessness. And so I think we are seeing these oscillations all over the planet, in the Middle East, in Europe, in the U.S., and either we'll see gradual orderly change or we will see see more disorderly disruptions, which could be negative for all segments of society. When when the elite get together at places like Davos in Switzerland, which is like one of these annual things where people are kind of locked in the Alps together networking, do they talk about, you know, what if, I don't know that they think about it, what if the revolution's coming, but like, what if things are about to change in a major way? Does that seem to be a concern? I would say it's the number one topic because they are afraid uh, with regard to the political polarization that we're seeing everywhere as a result of the income gap and opportunity gap that we'll see polarization to either end, either the extreme left or the extreme right, but out of extremism, nothing good can come. We seen in history. And I think, you know, we need to wait and see what's going to happen in the U.S. But I think initially there was also that, you know, this um, isolationism, nationalism, closing of borders, keeping out foreigners is kind of an extreme swing of the pendulum to the other side. So one of the things you also talk about, and you've been to Davos many times, as you say, you've met a lot of these people and, and, and talked to them. Um, one of the things you mentioned is there the super hubs all have not all, but many of them have a lot in common. Uh, they are mostly white and mostly male. Can you explain why there are not that many women and not that many non-white people as part of the super hub group? 
Yes, it's because of the law of homophily, like and like attracts. And so they're in positions of power. And um, as an example, when they hire other people, and it's called the airport test, with whom do you feel more comfortable? With whom do you have the most in common? <laughs> and we all sort of operate in that way. It's not necessarily conscious. It's not necessarily meant to be discriminatory. Uh, you know, they're not and it's the, air, it's the airport test because who would you want to hang out with in an airport, right, if your flight was you delayed? You get stuck, exactly, which is a right, very right. timely And people example. like you is the answer. People like yourself. Right. You know, they have the same background, same schooling. They vacation in the same places. They have a lot to talk about. And if people have a lot in common, they tend to trust each other more. It facilitates communication. It's just makes things easier, especially in times of crisis, for instance. Also, it saves costs within institutions if people are the same and think the same. They don't have to ask many cumbersome questions. And that's part of the reason why there are, for instance, fewer women, less minority in general, even though it's gotten better at the entry level. That is more diverse, but up to a certain level. And then it gets, you know, pretty much just male and white. Sandra Navidi is the author of Superhubs, How the Financial Elite and Their Networks Rule Our World. She's also the founder and CEO of the consulting firm Beyond Global. Sandra, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Kara. It's been a pleasure. Ian Brimmer is an international analyst who gets up close with world leaders and people who run large banks and others in powerful positions. I asked him last year if it worried him that those folks had become so separate from the rest of us. It does worry me because I'm a part of it, and I wasn't raised that way. Um, I don't like it. I, I don't. I don't like. I mean, I, I love the luxuries of it. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, the fact is that it's it's very disconnected, and it's very easy if you're in that environment to not remember or care about the fact that you're not there to serve the interests of that group. You can find our entire interview with Ian Bremmer at our website, innovationhub.org. Just click on the post about Superhubs. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. This week, we also say farewell to our great intern, Matt Toda, and we wish him luck out there wild world of journalism. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.